Welcome to the Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. Our goal at the Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of mainstream media and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On the Hub podcast, Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should be spending more time and attention focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Elbridge Colby, who served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development in the Trump administration and is the author of the widely praised book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in the Age of Great Power Conflict. Elbridge did a Hub Dialogue with us late last year on the future of geopolitics. He's gracious enough to join us again today to help us make sense of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including how Western countries ought to respond and its broader geopolitical implications. Elbridge, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be with you, Sean. We're speaking on Friday, February 25th, which is the second full day of Russia's incursion into Ukraine. Let's just start big picture. Were you surprised that Putin ultimately pulled the trigger? And what, in your view, is his ultimate motivation? I'd say I was sort of surprised, but not shocked. I mean, I think it's a dramatic move. It's a huge, a huge risk. And of course, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm certainly someone who thinks that military affairs and geopolitics are relevant. But I mean, this is a real diving into the, the deep end of the pool by the Kremlin. I wouldn't say I'm shocked because it's been a sort of slow motion surprise in the sense that they've made clear they're dissatisfied. They built up a military to do it. The relations have been, with us have been frosty for a long time. So again, I, I don't pretend to any prescience, but it's certainly, I would say, didn't come out of left field. But in terms of their goals, I think those are still up in the air, and I'm I'm influenced by my partner Wes Wes Mitchell on this. I mean, it's my view, but but I you know he's kind of knows these issues very 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 well. You know, I think it's important to recognize that just because you have military effects that go very far, and even that your military, including your ground forces, would go very far, it doesn't mean that that maps exactly to your political objectives. So, my guess is it's somewhere in between. I mean, the, the Russians have been hitting targets in the in the west, but their ground efforts are concentrated towards Kiev, and it seems like the eastern two thirds of the or eastern half of the country. And you know, the military force is large by contemporary standards, but it's not huge. And Ukraine, I think, is the second largest country by geography in. Europe after Russia itself. So, I mean, under 200,000 troops, as we found in Iraq, it's difficult to have like a real occupation, even if you have done Grozny and, you know, you're Napoleon in Spain or something. I mean, that's still difficult, even if you're willing to be ruthless. So my guess is that they know that, although we have seen indications of like their National Guard units, so they're kind of more occupation units. That suggests to me they're probably going to go in for some kind of coerced regime change, set up like a kind of puppet government and then work with sort of sympathetic Ukrainians. They might have territorial aims in terms of like the Donbass region or, or others, but probably a kind of where, where Russia's direct exposure 
is more limited, but where the, the government is clearly in line with what Russia wants. I mean, even probably an even stronger version of what we see in Belarus because, you know, they didn't have to go in and, and, and occupy Minsk. I mean, whereas here, they're, they're really showing that they're the boss. Elbridge, you argue in your book and elsewhere that due to the rise of China and the scarcity of government resources and attention, the U.S. needs Europe to step up and take responsibility for its continental security. What are we to make of Europe's weak response on on Russia? What does it tell us about the reliability of Europe as a security partner? And does it bring into question the future of the EU? Well, it's I mean, it's tremendously uh, frustrating. It doesn't even get at it. I mean, this is a totally the, the, the fact that Russia could threaten NATO is a totally preventable outcome in the sense that Europe dwarfs Russia in GDP terms. I mean, Italy alone. And even if you want to put a, d- a discount because the Russians do more on the military or whatever, it's still several times larger European NATO than, than Russia. So it's really just a matter of will. And during the Cold War, the, the Western NATO allies did have the large, including the Germans, had a very large and very sophisticated military. People like to think that they had been di- disarmed since World War II, but that's not true. They had a very formidable military. And if the Europeans could kind of put a fraction of that together, it'd be, and but it's to the contrary. Not only are the Germans disarmed, but they're blocking swift sanctions. Their energy completely dependent on, on Russia. So it's sort of like, again, it's like this slow motion, slow moving train wreck that we've had where not only can the Kremlin move advantageously militarily against Ukraine, but it also knows it has these sources of leverage against the main European players. I mean, it wasn't only Germany, it was also Italy blocking the, the swift move. And I think over concern about energy as well. So you know, I mean, I think the European Union, I mean, NATO is a credible organization these days, largely because of the Americans. I think we need to fundamentally shift towards a different model, as we think we've discussed, which is that the Americans remain committed to NATO and have significant military contributions, but a much, much, much more leading role by the Europeans. And, you know, Germans, Poles, the Poles are doing a good job. They're a great job. They're increasing, their, they're buying a whole bunch of main battle tanks from the Americans. The Finns do a good job. I mean, the Brits are doing a good job. So the building blocks are there. It's really mostly about Germany getting in gear. If Germany did it right, we would have we wouldn't really have a serious threat to NATO because the Europeans would provide most of the conventional offenses and the Americans would provide the kind of the nuclear umbrella and kind of the the real, you know, space assets, global kind of things, as well as some local, maybe some local contributions. You know, the, the thing the point I make to the Europeans is part of this overall bargain that I think we should be offering to the Europeans. Is, is actually somewhat consistent with the French aspiration, not their actual offer. I mean, as some people have pointed out, this is this has done real damage to the idea of, of, of the European as a, as a third pole. I mean, if it ever was a credible idea, which I'm skeptical about, because if you're in Eastern Europe and you've seen the French and the Germans and the Italians basically be not that concerned about you, are you really going to rely on Brussels when the chips are down? Probably not. And that means that the European Union is going to continue to be this kind of confederation more than anything else. And if you want a cohesive Europe, you actually need the Americans' help. And this is the thing that the French, I think, need to understand is they, they, they should work with us to make a more cohesive Europe that will then allow us to more readily to shift our focus to Asia. But we're already like, we're beyond the sort of nice kind of think tank ideas. We need to like actually do something because the Russians are, <laughs> and the Chinese are very real. We'll come to China in, in a minute, Elbridge, but uh, I just want to pick up on the, your observations about Germany. You've argued elsewhere that Germany holds the key to Europe's future um, and the evidence in months, recent months and, and, and obviously in, in, in 
past days isn't promising. Is Germany's weak response really about the country's reliance on Russian gas exports, or is there something else going on? I think it's more fundamental. I mean, look, I think there's this idea that the Germans are naive and that they live in the end of history. And there's some truth to that. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you look at the at the results of their policy over the last generation, it's been very good for Germany, as, as former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien puts it, they have a Germany first policy. And we should recognize it as such. They disarm because they're not under threat and they don't want to pay for defending the Eastern Europeans. Okay. They decide they want a fully green economy. So they, well, notionally, so they got rid of economic nuclear energy and they shifted to reliance on Russia. Go figure. They've developed a dominant position in the Eurozone where they have like a belt of economies that are reliant on them and which depresses the value, you know, uh, enables their exports. So it's pretty good. Pretty good for Germany. And they, oh, and they moralize about it too. That's like, that, that's real, the, the coup de grace, if you will. You know, the, you know, it's like the cherry on top. We use a more American expression. So I, I think we should react accordingly. And I think the president's view towards Germany is like 180 degrees. I mean, I don't know why he was like lauding Chancellor Schultz when Schultz is actually going to potentially be even worse than Chancellor Merkel, which is like pretty amazing. You know, on defense spending and the Russians and the Chinese. I mean, Merkel wanted to push through the China Investment Treaty. I mean, really? <laughs> so I think we need to take a much tougher view on Germany. Now, one that's intelligent and savvy and strategic and has realistic goals for them. And I think there's a strong strain of the, I mean, certainly places like Poland and you're clearly going to have a clear picture of, of Germany. But I think in the United States as well, there's a growing sense that the German, you know, is a real sort of clear, the scales have fall, sort of fallen from the eyes. And, and Biden represents, in my view, kind of like the last gasp of the transatlantic romanticists. I don't think that's going to carry forward, no matter uh, the, the political party. In a sense, Obama and Trump were both not transatlantic romanticists in different ways. And, um, you know, just to be fair, I've been saying this to the Germans very directly in whatever capacity I could for the last several years. I, I ran a piece in the Soy Deutsche Zeitung, the Munich, you know, daily during the weekend of the Munich Security Conference, basically saying this, because like, shouldn't we be honest? Like, won't that result in a better collective policy? Or are we just going to pretend that everything's great? And that's going to lead to fundamental breakdown if, if we're not careful. Well, I'm, I'm glad I, I asked that question because that's a, that's a meaty answer, Elbridge. Let's now come to China. You've argued elsewhere, including our previous hub dialogue, that the U.S. and Canada need to reorient their focus on confronting China's economic and geopolitical ambitions. What does Russia's invasion of Ukraine mean for that kind of reorientation? Does it make it more likely that China may invade Taiwan? Well, I don't think it changes any of the fundamentals, actually. I mean, I think there's this idea that this is going to interrupt or should interrupt our focus on China. And I, I mean, it's not like our interests in Asia are determined by Russia playing nice. No, like Asia is the primary theater and China is the most significant other actor. So in fact, that reality and the fact that we've neglected dealing with it for so long makes it more likely that China and by the way, Iran, or excuse me, Russia and by the way, Iran are, are going to try to exploit it. But that, that shouldn't stop us from doing the shift. We have to shift because the logic holds, you know, that's the critical theater. And there's a lot of people who just kind of want to try to live in 1999 or 2004 who are saying, ah, oh, well, we got to, you know, Russia and China and Iran. And it's like, they're not dealing with reality. I mean, my, my kind of rule of thumb right now, more and more is like, if somebody's not dealing overtly and clearly and credibly with the scarcity 
of military power, but also our economic power and our political capital, they shouldn't be taken seriously. Their arguments are not serious because, I mean, you don't have to agree with me, but you, if we're going to have a serious strategic debate, you have to reckon with the fact that you can't use things all over the place. You know, so the military is obvious. I mean, I was in John Bolton kind of was attacking this argument of mine. He's like, literally said, military resources are not zero sum, which is like, well, I mean, last time I checked, Planes and tanks like can't be in two places at once. Like, and if if you use a missile, it blows up. Right, it's not there anymore. So, just a blatantly fallacious argument. But it's also true in sanctions. I, I put out something on Twitter this morning about sanctions, where one of the concerns about sanctioning Russia with SWIFT and stuff is that it will continue to push people towards the Chinese system. And it's sort of you know, I mean, it's not a one to one thing, but it's like. A lot of these sanctions, if we use them, they're going to create a catalyzing reaction, which is going to make it less useful. Some, I don't know, like antibiotics, it's going to make it less useful. But it's going to make it less useful next time, including if we want to use it against China and not say the sanctions are a silver bullet against Russia or China. But, you know, if you if you got one shot with with de-swifting somebody and then ever, after that, everybody who could potentially be on your bad side doesn't use it anymore, well, then you better be sure you're using it in the big, the best way. So anyway, that's kind of the um, the overarching point. But I do think that we have to do things like we should absolutely be involved in Europe and, and stay engaged in Europe, but in a way that's acutely conscious of the scarcity. And so that's mostly about the sanctions, obviously, arming the Ukrainians and helping them try to defend themselves as much as possible and get the Europeans to step up, but always conscious that we need to preserve the kind of crown jewels of our power assets for the China phase, particularly over time, because you know, I mentioned this, the sanctions issue, but like if you use a, one, a precision guided munici- munition in a war, some of those can take years and years to, to rebuild, let alone like a stealthy heavy bomber. I mean, those things take years. Ships take years. If you lose ships, that's a big, you know, so that creates a window. And to your point, yes, China might invade Taiwan within the window that's, that's created. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you, based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. If we can come back to Russia, I've heard and read your argument that the worst case scenario would be for Russia to seize and digest Ukraine and then move on elsewhere quickly. If you were still advising the U.S. president What should the American government be doing at this point to respond to Russia's invasion? How can the West effectively make Ukraine the graveyard of Putin's expansionary ambitions? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think my my partner, Wes, he put it very well in a foreign policy piece. I mean, and and I recognize that the human cost that's involved here, but I mean, I think we need to think about it in clear terms is a bleeding ulcer for Russia. What we don't want is for Russia to be able to ingest Ukraine reset its military forces and ingest kind of Ukraine's kind of power resources and then directly threaten NATO. That's bad for us on multiple levels. And so what we want to do is we want to make it as difficult and costly for them as possible without, of course, triggering 
escalation that is not in our interests. I mean, it's not worth it to go to the nuclear brink, obviously, over, well, I don't think it is, over Ukraine. And so I think in this context, we have a lot of, I mean, I was sort of, it's a little bit snarky, but I think it's true, which is the Soviets perfected this in Vietnam in particular. I mean, they really, you know, tied us down and hurt us for many years through supplying the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, you know, and so we can supply Ukrainians, many of whom appear willing to fight and sacrifice themselves very, very admirably. I think so. our sanctions should be designed to try to do exactly this, which is make it difficult to ingest Ukraine and kind of bring it about and then restore whatever military power they've used up and need to regenerate. And then, of course, especially use the time to strengthen Europe's defensive, you know, military, military position as quickly as possible. So I think that's sort of our and there's a partially a demonstration or instructive effect, but I mean, people tend to sort of say, well, Putin needs to see that he needs to learn. I'm not sure that we're going to teach Vladimir Putin anything, but I think what we need to make is just he's going to have a problem and he's not going to have the strength to make it worthwhile for him to even countenance transgressing NATO. A penultimate question for you. You, you mentioned in an earlier answer what this episode tells us about NATO and its ongoing purpose. You know, I guess I, I would put to you, is it still relevant? Does it need a new mandate? If so, what might that look like in the 21st century? I think NATO is still very relevant, still very important. Actually, I think it's kind of go back to the, the, the sources, which is, you know, like the original idea, I think is, a, for instance, Eisenhower had it, which is a much stronger European coloration. I mean, I think we're going to have to primarily focus on Asia. We do have deep interests, of course, in Europe. But the Europeans have the capacity to secure the NATO area, particularly from the conventional forces point of view, largely on their own. We should help them. But I would see over time a shift towards like, for instance, there should be a European SACIR, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. Like, why is that an American? Okay, I understand back in the 1950s or 60s that that was you know, because obviously Europe was you know, on its back. But this is a much different situation. You know, Actually, in some sense, it'd make more sense if the SACIR were the military officer were, were European and the political, the secretary general were American maybe, because the American function over time is going to be actually a lot of the political convening and the assistance. You know, don't get me wrong. I don't think we should pull out of Europe entirely. I do think we're going to have to move towards significant reductions to really focus on, on Asia over time. But I think that's the sort of model. So the Europeans can have the confidence that the Americans have their back. We're there with, you know, the really high end kind of stuff like space, uh, the nuclear umbrella. But that, and then I think we should try to shape our military over time to lessen the the pointedness of this choice between Europe and Asia. That would mean like probably cutting our army and having more missile stocks and aircraft. But we're we're very far from that point at this point, and there are big political hindrances to that. So that's not a panacea. But that's the sort of the model that that I would see. I said that was my penultimate question, but if I can just uh, slide one more in before we wrap up with a, a question about Canada. You know, you've been part of an ongoing intellectual debate in the United States about American foreign policy. And, you know, it seems to me for a long time, like we discussed in our last dialogue, your perspective, which was uh, about, uh, you know, the need for restraint, uh, need for a kind of a dose of realism was in the wilderness. What do you take from the immediate responses to Russia's in, invasion of Ukraine? And from, from an outside perspective, I've been struck that the uh, interventionism of the Bush years seems to have shaped the, the debate in, in the United States. That is to say, 
you know, notwithstanding John Bolton, I haven't seen a lot of voices arguing for a more active response. Is that a sign, Elbridge, that your perspective is kind of winning the battle of ideas uh, with regards to American foreign policy? Well, I do think I, I, I analogize it. So a lot of the most vocal voices, the loudest voices maybe, are actually kind of the Bush neocon sort of perspective. But that often is because they're the established ones. You know, I mean, literally, you know, our Senate turns over every six years and the you know senior members of the Senate are people who've been around a while. You know, on television, often the people who have been around for a while are, you know, so I actually, but I think the way I analogize it, shouldn't talk to Canadians about ice, but like there's ice, there's sort of surface ice, but underneath the water is moving. And the fundamental reality, I think that, that unfortunately I have on my side is like facts, you know, that the rise of China and people get that even though, but the power structure in Washington is still lagging, I think pretty considerably. But what's interesting is like, if you look at this sort of the rhetoric coming out of Washington, both sides, a lot in many cases, and then other some of the other capitals, and then what's actually being done, it's a pretty big divide, right? Like the president's saying it's like almost the end of the world, and then we're not de-swifting the Russians. Like, I and again, it's a little bit of a last gasp kind of phenomenon. And I think honestly, not to be, be solipsistic or anything, but I've been getting attacked a fair amount in the last couple of weeks. And if my point of view were irrelevant, then I wouldn't be getting attacked, right? Like people wouldn't care, you know? So, I mean, Bolton's not the only one. I've gotten these other, I get these subtweeting, you know, people like, people who are arguing that Asia first, you know, and it's like, well, I, I think I'm like, there's like maybe one other person that I know of, you know? So it's like, people are saying, you know? um, but it's like, okay, I must be doing something right, you know? So I, I, I'm angering all the right people. So, you know, and I mean, my job is not to be beheaded, <laughs> as i as i go along but i think things are trending in the right the right direction but unfortunately the enemy has a vote as putin is showing and as i mean it's not impossible that tomorrow we could wake up and there could be the news that china's you know started the invasion of taiwan not saying that's likely not saying i think that's going to happen but again it would be surprising but not shocking probably let's wrap up with a final question about what advice uh, you'd give Canadian policymakers over the short and long term? And, and to what extent would your advice change in light of uh, these recent developments? As I think, you know, I, I testified before the, or had the honor of testifying before the Canadian National Defense Committee, the House of Commons National Defense Committee uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, this is kind of what I said. I mean, I mean, Canada, like the United States, is immensely secure except from each other. Uh, no, but, you know, I mean, we, we're both in a very, I mean, we're protected by two huge oceans and uh, the Arctic, I guess, in your case. So, you know, we are the ultimate potential collective good purveyors. And of course, the United States, I mean, we make plenty of mistakes, but in terms of defense commitments, we do a lot. Uh, the United Kingdom does a lot. Uh, Australia has done a lot. And, you know, in the past, I think Canada has been a real leader. I mean, I said this on CBC the other day, you know, I mean, Canada did has a nobler record in the world wars than America does. I think, you know, speaking as the grandson of veteran and great grandson of war veterans and that in the second world war and so forth, Canada was in the full time, both times. So it's like, that's, you know, it's a heroic and storied legacy of uh, on that front. But in the last couple decades, Canada's kind of not been doing so much and it's needed, you know? And then I, so I think the question would be, I mean, it's better if Canada does more on the defense side, 
I think it's got the capacity, right? I mean, in terms of economic capability. And, you know, you're not going to create a one million person army, but, you know, if you can high end contributions, and it probably makes sense in areas like the Arctic and Europe. In Europe, there is going to be a vacuum that's going to be created by the fact that America has to shift. I mean, we're not abandoning Europe, but there's going to be a delta. And it would be really helpful if Canada is there. And then Canada, UK, Poland, hopefully Germany, the Scandinavians, you know, and I think there was a Canadian unit on the inter-German border during the Cold War, at least for periods. So, you know, again, that's consistent with Canada's history. So that's certainly what I would hope. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's Elbridge Colby, the author of the book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in the Age of Great Power Conflict. Elbridge, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues to make sense of uh, these extraordinary developments. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.